beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever a preacher comes to Lord's Day 21 in the cycle, in the rotation of preaching through the Lord's Days, at Lord's Day 21 he faces a, a crisis of sorts. It's a mini crisis to be sure. He has to decide how he should preach on this Lord's Day, seeing, as we all can see at a quick glance, how full it is, how much, how great a deal of material there is here. Should he tackle it altogether in one sermon, which would no doubt easily be a lengthy sermon, even if he ends up shortchanging parts of it or much of it, Or should he split it into a few sermons for each of these three questions open themselves up to to profound subjects, to large topics, which could have whole sermon series on each of them on their own. So then you might wonder, why did the authors of the Catechism string these three Lord's Days into, or three questions and answers into one Lord's Day? Were they perhaps being overly ambitious? Were they being kind of like you and I when you, when you try to pack too many things into one suitcase? Well, I think we can agree that the Catechism is certainly being ambitious here, but it does this because it means to teach us something, and that something is that these three topics covered here are not unrelated. They're all connected, flowing naturally from the previous article of the Apostles' Creed where we confess our faith in the Holy Spirit. While that article was brief and the Catechism's treatment of that article in Lord's Day 20 is similarly very brief, yet it's, the reason it's so brief is because it gets unpacked in the following articles in Lord's Days of the Catechism, what the Catechism covers in Lord's Day 21 and 22, where these Lord's Days give us tremendous insight into the work of the Spirit who is engaged in the work of of gathering a church, promoting communion among the saints, and achieving and accomplishing the forgiveness of sins. And Lord's Day 22 then goes on to fill us with the, the hope of the resurrection of the body and everlasting life. So that's what the catechism is, is getting into here. It's the Spirit's ministry reflecting what He's doing among us, among God's people. And so as we consider this first question and answer of Lord's Day 21 this afternoon, let us do so realizing that what we have here is a, is a Reformed treasure. In the Reformed tradition, we have a way of speaking about the church that is exciting, that's richly biblical. It's a thrilling doctrine. But that's not to say that it should make us feel superior. We're not here this afternoon to give ourselves a a good pat on the back. For this doctrinal treasure that we have as Reformed churches, we have also as Reformed churches neglected. So we should be careful not to think that Lord's Day 21, oh, 
think, oh yeah, we've got this down pat. Wish that others would just catch up to us. No. We have to recognize that we share in the weaknesses that come with having a faulty understanding or lack of appreciation for the doctrine of the church. Just like every other church around us, we can easily forget the importance of the church or take an individualistic mentality towards the church or adopt consumeristic mentalities toward the church. And each of those things can do great damage to the church. And so again and again, we need to rediscover the Reformed treasure that we have in the doctrine of the church so that we love it, so that we celebrate it, so that we want to live it out more as we understand its importance. And so we'll look at this doctrine this afternoon under this theme. We confess the glorious formation of the church. And we'll see three points. First, the builder of the church. Secondly, the basics about the church. And thirdly, the blessings of the church. First, we look at the builder of the church. When one comes to question and answer 54, and to the question, what do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Christian Church, what we find is that the Catechism gives a, a fairly long and detailed answer. And in order for us to grasp the, the magnitude of what it's saying, what we need to do is something that's, that's called sentence diagramming. Sentence diagramming, or, or you could say it's sentence decoding. It's the art of decoding if that helps us to understand. What I mean by sentence diagramming or sentence decoding is by looking at a sentence and searching out the key parts. Where's the subject? Where's the verb? Where's the object? And in a complicated sentence, at least it may be complicated to some of us, that can be something like playing hide-and-seek finding all of those components so that the thought of the sentence becomes clear and makes sense. And so when one gets the hang of this, then it becomes a very useful skill, helpful for, for unscrambling complex sentences like this one. Seeing how this works in the case of question and answer 54, one discovers that the subject is listed immediately at the beginning of the answer. And then two lines later come the verbs, a series of them, a triad, revealing that this subject gathers, defends, and preserves for himself. What? We bounce down to over two more lines, and you find the object, a church, a believing community, that is. Now, the question we want to ask, then, is who is doing this? Who's gathering, defending, and preserving a church Who's the subject of this question and answer? The Catechism says, I believe the Son of God gathers, defends, and preserves. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who's doing this. This needs to be the first point that we, that we come back to again and again whenever our minds go to thinking about the church. That the church has a builder and his name is Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, 18. Upon this rock, meaning Peter's confession, 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon this rock, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church. So we confess the church to be a gathering of believers whom God has graciously called out of the world. In fact, the word church in Greek is the word ekklesia, which is a compound word in Greek, ek meaning out and klesia, or it's rooted in the word kaleo, which means called. So it is those who are called out, the called out ones, that is the church. Well, that shows us that the church is not our plan. It's not our project. It's God's plan, His project. The one who spoke to create the whole world out of nothing also speaks through His Word today to draw out of the world a people for Himself to become the bride of Christ. It's no less a miracle. The church is Christ's bride whom He gathers and defends and preserves. And so then the church is really unlike any other organization in the world. And we should treat it as such. Treat it with, with a greater dignity and a greater respect than, than any other organization in the world. For it's not our idea, it's not our invention, it's not our toy to play with. We don't create the church. No more than any child can say he created his family. We don't create our families, do we? Boys and girls, we're, we're born into a family. We're brought into a family. And the church is a family into which we've been graciously adopted by God through His Spirit. Now, this doctrine is necessary for the sake of our humility. For what we have around us in North America is an very much an entrepreneurial approach that many take toward the church, where the church is treated like it's a, a, another business. So what happens is a church thinks of itself according to a business model. You go and you, and you study the market. You find out what people want, and then you proceed to give it to them. You build a church that, that is according to to what those wishes and wants are. This affects the church. This infects the church. The result is that the responsibility for the church's success or failure depends on people doing everything right, up to spec, as they say, or up to code, the the specifications and the codes that are spelled out in church growth manuals or seminars providing whatever suits the interests of people and, and getting the maximum amount of people into the doors. And then having churches, big churches that leave big footprints and, and considering that as the definition of success. But that's, that's completely off base and it judges churches by the wrong set of standards. 
The church is not dependent on man. It's dependent on God. That's what we need to remember. That we are not the ones primarily responsible for building the church. We have to remember that, especially when times are difficult for a church. That we are in God's hands. Even then, even when numbers may be dwindling for remaining faithful to the truth, even, when, even if most of what we see around us is, is, is spiritual decay within a church, we must remember this when God blesses a church also, that He is the one who blesses His people, that Jesus Christ is the one who is building His church And this is not only reason for humility, but it's also reason for our encouragement. Many of us, I think, if someone were to give us the impression that that we were the ones who were responsible for the church's growth, or or maybe give us credit where where, where credit isn't due, say as, as parents raising our children and so that they come to faith in Christ and, 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 and others give us credit for it. We would, we would rightly deflect any and, and all attention away from ourselves and we'd give it to God. We know that that's where it belongs and we know that we're not up to the task. The power's not in our hands or in our control. And because we know who is in control and we know where the power is concentrated. Therefore, what must we do? We must fold our hands and pray for the church and pray for the Lord to gather His church as He sees fit. This, that's our comfort when we confess that Jesus is the one who is building and gathering His church. And we come now to our second point, considering the basics about the church. In question and answer 54, we also confess that the church Christ is gathering, defending, and preserving is holy. That means it's a a gathering of people who are separated from the unbelieving world. And that's why they are addressed as saints in multiple places in Scripture. Not because they have halos on top of their heads, not because they live so well. No, they're saints because they're separated ones. They are the recipients of God's gracious work of redemption. They're separated because God has set them apart and brought them into His family. So the holiness of the church is, is first of all, a reality. Paul knew that addressing the the church as saints. He does that many places, many of his letters. It was not because each of them were were so exceptionally pious across the spectrum. He knew that they were saints because God had called them out. So there was and there is a reality to holiness in the church. But With that, there's also a profound need and responsibility and calling to live holy lives as members of Christ's church. The Bible teaches us that 
no one who despises holiness can confidently call themselves a Christian. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, verse 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So God is teaching us how to think about ourselves because of the Spirit's work in us. He's making believers holy, and we should strive for that holiness also. And then we also confess that the church is Catholic. Now, the word Catholic can be confusing because it might call to mind the the Roman Catholic Church, only because they use the same word. That might cause us to feel uneasy and, and uncomfortable using that word, but we can, in fact, be confident in our use of the word Catholic, with a small c, in the sense that the the Roman Catholic Church is actually less Catholic than we are. For the word Catholic simply means universal. Christ is gathering for himself a people out of the entire human race from the beginning of this world to the end. And all of the people whom God is is drawing out and calling out for himself who are making up the church. But Rome actually subverts the, the Catholicity of the church by only recognizing those who are members of that particular denomination. But what we are actually taught by the word Catholic is that just as God is no respecter of persons, neither is he a respecter of denominations or of, of time periods, any, any golden eras, that sort of thing. There was no segment of Christians who can claim that they were greater than others because they belonged to, to this denomination or that denomination, as if they somehow had, had obtained the, the possession of a special magic ticket to heaven on such a basis. No, there's a Catholicity in the church. It's one, it's universal. One flock, Christ taught in John 10. One sheepfold, one building. We also can read in Revelation 5, verse 9, that God will populate heaven with people from every tribe and tongue and nation. So God is Catholic, and we must be Catholic as well, accepting all true believers who share faith in Christ as brothers and sisters, even if their faith is perhaps expressed somewhat differently than ours. When we understand that, when we recognize that, that it is not our particular traditions that make us the church, but rather it is Christ who draws people to himself through his word and through his spirit. Well, having these basics about the church understood down pat helps us avoid two errors in our day. One error is a churchless Christianity. A churchless Christianity. You can understand what that may mean. This is an error that, that seems to be proliferating in our day and age, in our culture and where many call themselves Christians, but are not 
church members, do not join a church, have no interest in the church or joining the church, which nearly always starts after one becomes an infrequent attender or, or, or dis, a disengaged participant. But what we are confessing here in this Lord's Day is that the Holy Spirit makes believers by, by drawing them into a family, a body, a church, the body of Christ. And He makes them part of something that's, that's bigger than themselves. If certain parts of the body are not present or they're not tied in, not integrated, not connected, then the functioning of the body as a whole begins to suffer. As though the church has gone through, through a amputation surgery and those amputated parts believe that they can continue to survive and exist on their own apart from... Well, with no help from anyone else. Well, that's a recipe for spiritual disaster. And yet the individualism that lies at the root of this can, can be seen creeping more and more into the church today where members do not know each other or, and therefore do not trust each other. And only a right understanding of the church can help to correct this and Correct this imbalance and avoid falling into this error. But then a, a second error that a right understanding of the church helps us to steer clear of is kind of the opposite of, of, a, of a churchless Christianity that we've just talked about. Something that's been called a Christless churchianity. A Christless churchianity you see, it's possible, of course, to, to put stock in the church without putting stock in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and not to plead the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but to plead our church membership. And that, too, would be a grievous error. And that's why question and answer 54 also draws our attention to our confession of the holy Catholic Christian church. We must be in Christ to be saved. We must be Christians who are, who are captivated by the truth of Jesus Christ, filled with the desire to, to know Him more, to love Him more. And that means that we must be also in the church because that's His bride whom He loves whom he laid down his life for. For what he loves, we must also love. And we must not despise what he loves. Even if his bride may appear to us to have many wrinkles and, and blemishes, her sins and her shortcomings, which we think that we cannot look past, they're too glaring, too obvious. We see them so often maybe prompting us to think that we might find an upgrade in some way or other by moving elsewhere. Yet in our day, uh, oh, yet one day, we, we know that these wrinkles and these blemishes will be gone, and she will be holy and spotless and crowned with glory. We come now to our third point, looking at the blessings of the church. 
in order to see the blessings of the church, we have to zone in on the details that our answer gives us, the in-between phrases that, that are tucked between the key parts of the answer that we considered earlier when we sentence-diagrammed the, the catechism's answer. We establish that Christ is the subject of this Lord's Day and that what He's doing is gathering and, and defending and preserving His church. But now, let us consider what the authors are saying when they add in phrases such as, out of this whole human race, that's answering the the where question, and then the later phrase, from the beginning of the world to its end, that's answering the when question. What's the point of these statements? The point is, That the church is God's project that He began long ago, at the beginning of human history, and He's still continuing this project even today, and He's not done yet. He's a a missional God who, who wants to reach every part of the human race with the good news of grace. Consider how exciting this is. Right when we are considering the doctrine of the church where one might think of of all the places in in the catechism, in our confession, where we'd be the most tempted to to become inwardly focused, narrowly minded on ourselves, thinking about what what we get out out of the gospel, what we get as the church, right where we finally get the the spotlight shining on ourselves, as it were, the catechism turns the spotlight to to this glorious vision of all history out of the whole human race being gathered a church. And the message for us to see in that is that God's mission does not end with you. You and I are not the terminal point of God's mission. God blesses His church. He blesses you and I in order that we would be a blessing. We sang of this in Psalm 67 earlier. The psalmist prays, May God be merciful and bless us and cause His face upon us to shine. Those are words that, that allude to the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you as we'll hear again this afternoon. But we don't just pray this blessing for ourselves. We pray it so that God would reveal His ways to all the nations. For the psalmist goes on to say, let all the peoples come to you and sing their praises to your name. Let all the heathen tribes adore you with joy your mighty deeds proclaim. So you see the flow there. God blesses His covenant people in order that through them He may bless the nations. So His mission also becomes our mission. He brings you and I from the nations in order that you and I would be engaged in His project of bringing in the nations. Now what does that look like? Does it mean that 
you all must, must go out to the mission fields. No. For the, the mission fields, in a sense, have, have come to us, haven't they? Whenever, wherever we find ourselves this week, as we confront the, the powers of darkness and, and evil and the idolatries of our culture in so many places and so many ways, as we engage with those whom God places on our path, we, we seek to do so in a way that all around us, all who are placed on our path, will see the gospel on display. And if we have opportunity also to, to hear it, from our lips, to put it differently, if our lips and our lives do not carry out this mission, then we're sadly missing the point of the point of what God has been doing and is doing and will be doing and what He wants you as well to be doing until the end of the world when His church will be fully gathered in, full in number. You see, the, the blessing of, the, of God is, is not restricted only for you and I. It's meant to be shared. Now, one could relate all of this to a mailman who thinks that, that all the letters and all the parcels are, that he's carrying around, driving around, are just for him. Now, wouldn't that be silly, boys and girls? Imagine that, the mailman with his vehicle packed to the ceiling with items that have other people's names and other people's addresses on them. What if he starts thinking that it all belongs to him? You might say he's gone a a little crazy. But isn't that so often what the church does? Hoard the blessings that should be shared with others. The blessings that we've received are to be delivered to the nations, to the lost around us, those walking in the darkness. The question is, are we living that way, being a blessing to others, showing them the light of Christ? So one of the blessings of the church is to be a light in this world, to this world. Another blessing of the church is that it is Something that we belong to. The Catechism puts it this way, I believe that I am and forever shall remain a living member of it. We have a a corporate identity that's not just rooted in Adam, in whom we we all died in in the fall, but we have a, a corporate identity rooted in Christ, who in whom we are all made alive. The church is that which Christ is gathering in the unity of the true faith in Him. In other words, that's the glue that holds us together. That's the glue that that brings us here on on a Sunday like today. Not common interests, not common background, not common shared values, But faith in Jesus Christ, that's what we all share. And that's what gives us a new identity and a new way of of, of being human, you could say. And that's what drives and should drive our fellowship. And that's what also motivates our loyalty. Our loyalty. We live in a day and age where 
where loyalty doesn't mean much anymore, where membership doesn't mean much anymore. Sure, one might have a membership to a gym or, or with a political party, let's say, as, as long as it remains convenient for us, and then when it's not, we cancel it. But membership in the church of God is something far greater. Membership means that our deepest loyalty and love is to be with the people of God, the body of Christ. For the sake of Christ, we love His bride. Just consider the language of Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church that He gave Himself up for her. There's so many who want to say, and if they don't say it, their lives may nevertheless show it, Jesus Christ, I love you, but I don't care for your wife too much. But how would you receive that? You see, a love for Christ requires a love for His church because it is the church that Jesus loves and it is the church that Jesus gave His life for. And that loyalty and love that he displayed for the church that he that motivated him to do what he did should also be what motivates us to be truly invested truly involved and included in that and so this is the glory of the treasure that we have in the doctrine of the church and there are many who don't see it who don't know it Many don't think the doctrine of the church is all that beautiful or all that exciting. They might confess it with their lips, but, but their, with their lives, they quite frankly betray this truth. They treat the church and her activities as, as a one day of the week kind of thing set aside or a bore or a burden not worth getting out of bed early for, not worth participating in, not something to make sacrifices for, not something to rejoice in. Well, may we not, brothers and sisters, be like that. Instead of betraying the glory of the church, let us behold the glory of the church by seeing Christ, uh, seeing the church as Christ sees her, his redeemed bride, which he has by his grace made you and I share in and pour out, let us pour out our life for the sake of the church, just as Christ did. Amen.